Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's show, we'll be handing out our History Game of the Year award. Only this time, we'll be including a few new categories to go along with the main event. To help me wade through the year that was in History Games, I'm joined today by the pride of Cork himself, Dr. John Harney. Hello, John. Hey, Bob. How are you? Happy holidays, Bob. Happy holidays to you, John. Uh, So, John, in spite of the pandemic, it turned out to be a really excellent year for History Games. And that fact inspired us to come up with some new categories for this year's History Game Awards so that we could celebrate more than just one game. Uh, So, John, I was wondering, could you share with our listeners our categories for this year? I would love to. So um, this is great. I'm thrilled about this because there's a lot of awesome games to talk about, as you say. We're going to start off with a shout out just to kind of talk briefly about a couple of games that that we really think are just worth kind of sharing, talking about, um, even if they didn't quite factor as much in the end into the larger discussions for awards. We have the We Are Old and the 1990s is History Now Award. Um, it's very personal for both of us. <laughs> we have a collection of awards then, which you're kind of, you know, calling the History Respond Gift Buying Guide. You kind of the best, quote, quote, stocking filler, which is kind of a an affordable game that you could get someone, maybe to get them into games or just, just to kind of be able to send someone as a, as a thank you or a happy Christmas type of thing. Um, a gift for the person in your life who found history boring in school which for me is my wife. She hated history. (laughs) And then the most quote unquote dad friendly game, which is kind of for, you know, your dad or the person in your life, whether it be your, your aunt or your sister or your brother, you know, the kind of person whose idea of fun is to sit down with an enormous book covering the battle for Stalingrad or something like that. That kind of that. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of a, instead of a big book, instead of a coffee table book, uh, instead of, you know, one of these books that you get at Barnes and Noble or some other bookseller, why not get them a game instead? Interactive. Exactly. Exactly. And kind of get them into what you're into, if that's the case. And then moving on to kind of our main category of goatees, we have a best character, um, slash best historical figure, I suppose. Uh, The history topic we learned the most about in 2020 via video games and covering them. The best game for the history classroom the most anticipated history game of 2021, 2020's history game of 2021, which is the game that came out this year we anticipate playing the most next year, 2019's history game of 2020. Bob and I both have small kids and therefore similar playing habits, so this is a lively category every year. So the game that came out last year, we played a bunch of this year. The uh, drum roll, please, 2020 history game of the year. And then finally, our non-history game of the year. That's our slate. Yeah, exciting. Okay, yeah. well, uh, John, do you want to start us out with your shout out for this year? Yeah, my shout out. I want to give my shout out to Iron Harvest, which is um, a real time strategy game that came out on PC, um, which is effectively it's in the um, forgive me, Bob. What's it called again? The post nineteen twenty. I forget what they called it now. Universe. Uh, oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Forgive me, everybody. Um, it's effectively a kind of a steampunk type interwar interpretation. Period. Yeah, it's an interpretation of the interwar period, but there's a specific kind of online community description of this fictional universe where basically it's 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 a steampunky, immediately post-World War One type universe where there are mechs um, and kind of a stand-in for the Russian Empire is very, very powerful and everything else. And so in Iron Harvest, you control effectively the a, a child of a Polish uh, freedom fighter, and then you uh, things happen to your parent in early in the game, as tends to happen in video games, and you take the fight to the Russians. Um, and I really liked it. I, I would say that, you know, one of the reasons it maybe doesn't get more consideration later on is that um, 
it's a very if you liked early to mid 1990s uh, RTS games, you're going to like this game. Um, but otherwise, it's going to give you some trouble. It, it needs a big time investment. It's got a lot of heart. It's got some shortcomings in its production, but it's got a lot of heart. Um, and in particular, I just really like the perspective it brings. It's got a very unapologetic Central European, that is to say Polish slash kind of Baltic perspective on the interwar period, the World War One, and even World War II fallout, and the relationship that those people have had historically with the Russians. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And in fact, what I did in the game is I switched the dialogue to Polish. Um, and it was great with English subtitles, obviously. So it was going on. <laughs> and um, so a very likable game. I really wanted to kind of just shout that out. You know, Iron Harvest is it's worth a look for sure. Awesome. How about you, Bob? What's yours? Yeah, so my shout out comes as a big surprise to me, I think, given my long history with this series. But my shout out goes to Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Um, which is a game that I assumed would have maybe rated higher on my game of the year list. But I went back and played more of it this weekend, uh, this past weekend. And I just, I can't find myself really eager to go back to that story. And I think it says more about my perspective on Assassin's Creed than it does that actual game. And what I mean by that is that I've, I played through the entirety of these recent titles. I played through the entirety of AC origins, played through the entirety of uh, AC odyssey. And now I'm, uh, what is it? 22, 23 hours into Valhalla. And I just, I feel like I'm just kind of burnt out on this current Assassin's Creed formula. And I would say that it does seem to me that this game in particular uh, is more popular uh, than the kind of previous uh, AC titles in this new series, Origins and Odyssey and Valhalla. Um, you know, I think that anecdotally, there's just a lot more people talking about this game uh, than they were talking about Odyssey when that came out. Um, I think that for a lot of people, this game is a good replacement for The Witcher, uh, particularly since Cyberpunk uh, turned mm -hmm. out not to be The Witcher. <laughs> uh, and so I think people are kind of getting that long RPG um itch scratched by this game and you know obviously the setting in uh, the dark ages kind of helps that witcher feel to it um, but for me i can just say that i just don't really find this era of history that compelling um you know i think as a modern historian i've always had i'm sure as you have too john these kind of secondary areas of history where you're really interested in you know for me mm -hmm. it's kind of the history of rome uh it's the early modern period um, you know, it's the history of India, but, uh, you know, dark age England just kind of, yeah. you know, <laughs> I'd take it or leave it. I, I don't mind, uh, discussing it, uh, as long as it's leading to something else like, you know, oh, this is leading to the high middle ages or it's leading to the early modern period, but just kind of focusing on the dark ages itself. has just never been that compelling to me. But then at the same time, you know, this is a really well-made game and it's one that I have no problem recommending to somebody else particularly if they love this era of history and you know with these caveats that i've placed in i'm still really eager to see uh if and when they debut a discovery tour mode uh for this uh game you know it took i'd say a year and a half after the release of the previous two titles origins and odyssey for them to release discovery tour mode so I'm hoping that, you know, comes again uh, for this game. And, you know, last Discovery Tour mode for Odyssey, I thought was really pretty good. And I'm really eager to see how they iterate on that idea 
for this history, even though I don't really find this history that interesting. Yeah, I know we could um we could joke with it being my Irishness or whatever, but you know, the bit I played in the game, I loved Norway and I wanted to get more into the mythology kind of spanning type stuff. Which when I think of that period, I think of that anyway. I think of, you know, Beowulf, and that kind of aspect. The truth is I don't really I was never that into bead personally. Yeah. That kind of same. You know, <laughs> same. Yeah. I mean, but it captivates some people, you know, and for oh, some yeah. people this is like their favorite type of history and not in kind of a white supremacist sort of way, but just kind of, you know, <laughs> they really right. like it. And for me, it's just never, it's never caught on. And, uh, I think it's too bad, but again, uh, easy to recommend this game. It's obviously well-made, you know, if you haven't played, uh, origins or odyssey, then definitely check this out. But for me, I think I'm just kind of, I've got modern Assassin's Creed fatigue. I just, feel like i've played so much of those games and you know origins i think took 25 hours so that was the longest uh, assassin's creed game up to that point and then odyssey blew that out of the water odyssey takes upwards of 50 hours to complete and valhalla is the same way you know it's like wow. a plus 50 hour game and i just i i'm tired i i don't <laughs> have it in me to do it and this could be i mean we'll see what the next year brings but this could be the first assassin's creed game I don't finish, uh, which is a remarkable thing to say. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things, a couple yeah. other shout outs. Um, you know, there's some games that you're not going to hear discussed here, largely because we didn't have time uh, to play them. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is uh, Pendragon uh, from Inkle Studios. Uh, they were kind enough to send me a review copy of that game. I haven't had a chance to play more than a few rounds of that game. Uh, and so I don't really feel like I can judge it uh in this regard but you know again love that studio and um, they just announced that they're going to do a new game set in the scottish highlands um i think it's going to be historical as well so looking mm -hmm. forward to that and then empire of sin uh which came out from uh the romeros uh earlier this month I haven't had a chance to touch that i it's i've heard that it's pretty buggy so i kind of want to wait for them to to fix those issues before i jump into that uh, and then also uh, Medal of Honor Above and Beyond, which is the VR title uh, from Respawn Entertainment. And uh, that's a game that's gotten pretty poor reviews so far, largely because of bugs. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to them maybe fixing that up and perhaps buying a virtual reality uh, headset for the first time next year. And the reason why I'm so interested in that game is I know that they put in a lot of historical detail, historical research into uh, the makeup of the characters uh, in that game, if not necessarily the story. And so I'm interested to see what that kind of work looks like in a virtual reality setting. So just uh, want to give a brief shout out to those games, which I want to spend more time with, but just haven't gotten enough time with to talk about uh, on this podcast. And I, I should actually throw in as well, um, Desperados 3, which I've only played a couple hours of, which is kind of a follow-up. It is a follow-up to Shadow Tactics, Blade of the Shogun, if people played that, um, which is you have these basically up to four characters doing strategy things at one time. Um, I've only played a little bit of it so far. It's really good. Um, I really like it. And it just feels... It's hard to put into words because Blade, Shadow Tactics was 
a very accessible game. It was hard, but it was very accessible. Desperados 3, it's a little bit like the Crusader Kings 2 to Crusader Kings 3 transformation. They've made all these very small, tiny changes that add up to a lot that make a big difference. Now, you have to be interested in cowboys, I think, to get into Desperados 3. Most people are. Um, and then a couple of games that I... It isn't even a shout-out. I just want to play them at some point would be Neo 2 and Panzer Corps 2, um, which both, I think, probably need to be covered by us maybe early in the year, and I probably do that. Um, I would love to see them. I would love to play both of those games. Uh, the first Neo was was really great. So we'll see. So we'll see. So okay. the next category then... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. Man. No, yeah, I was just going to introduce the next category, but you well, go, go for it. Yeah. All right, so the We Are Old of the 1990s is history now award so uh this is just to kind of confirm the or to confront the grim reality um that uh that you know maybe just maybe we're getting a little bit older bob and i um and so but it's it's i can live with the fact that civilization reached its peak in 1998 i can handle that (laughs) maybe 2002 um why don't you go first bob so what's your we are old in the 1990s is history now award who do you give it to uh well my award goes to command and conquer remastered uh which is the 1995 game uh by westwood studios uh that was recently updated uh with uh kind of a, a better sheen of graphics they also um kind of did an amazing hd transfer for the original fmv videos uh which were you know kind of uh instrumental i think in the success of that game you know 1995 is kind of the high point or the beginning of the high point for cd-rom games and uh you know fmv videos uh were part and parcel of that development so i think command and conquer Obviously, a great uh, real-time strategy game, uh, one that I think is uh, obviously really important to the history of games because of FMV, because of uh, real-time strategy. Uh, but then also, I think it's a really interesting uh, timepiece uh, for understanding uh, the 1990s, especially the kind of post-Cold War world. And you know, I wrote an article for Eurogamer, um, I think a couple of years ago, about uh, Command and Conquer Tiberian Sun. And I mentioned that how uh, the original Command and Conquer is a bit of a, a statement about where America was coming out of um, the Cold War. And it kind of imagined this near future in which, you know, you would have uh, multilateral uh, defensive arrangements uh, where you see in Command and Conquer GDI fighting against um, third world terrorist organizations like Brotherhood of Nod. And it has a very much a, a feel of uh, Western triumphalism uh, in that game. Uh, whereas by the time you get to Tiberian Sun, there's kind of obvious questions as to, you know, can this collective security idea work? And so, again, Command & Conquer, important game for gaming, you know, mechanics, uh, FMV, etc. But then also I think it, it works really well as a timepiece for understanding uh, the 1990s. You know, I you would say... Scholars of today, considering uh, the 1990s, they would obviously fall back on looking at movies, uh, looking at newspapers and magazines, uh, uh, looking at uh, 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 novels from this time period. But I think you would have to look at games as well. And Command and Conquer is definitely on that list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's fascinating. I mean, part of my initial idea with the 
the We Are Old Award was just the sheer um, number of remasters and remakes this year. And I mean, it's it's not the first year we've had lots of these, but I don't know. This year felt like there were just so many, like ones like Final Fantasy VII Remake and the Tony Hawk 1 Plus 2 that came out, which were, you know, big, big releases um, in their own right. Um, and all kinds of stuff that, you know, maybe you weren't paying attention to or didn't notice, like Burnout Paradise is again remastered. Um, Shin Megami, Shin Megami Tensei 3, which is one of those older games. It was just really astonishing. But after all that, I ended up picking Cyberpunk 2077 as my <laughs> game. And I'll explain. I'll try not to talk about Cyberpunk for half an hour, even though I totally could. Um, but just very, very briefly, um, first of all, I'm lucky. I got it on PC and it's working for me. It's been working very, very well for the most part. Um, I It sucks because I know that a lot of people listening maybe don't have PCs. Um, that can play it um, and you know so you just have to wait I think until they sorted this out right now it's not a very good place for consumers which is very sad um, and now that it's working for me there's still lots of weird buggy things in it um, it is not The Witcher 3 that's the first thing you have to understand about Cyberpunk it is. it just is not um, and if that's a deal breaker for you, I get it because The Witcher 3 was really good. Um, it's an odd game, I love living in its world it's got the music down for the kind of game that it is it's a kind of a weird gta game and and now i'm stealing a line from jeff gerson over in giant bomb but not like gta 5 more i think gta 3 and that's kind of where it is um and i didn't know i wanted that until i played it and then but the reason it gets a 1990s award is it just feels so 90s i think a lot of the critique of the game and this is entirely valid has been on its failure to kind of deliver on something more progressive or more original about where we're going with things like the human body, which to be fair, CD, Pro- CD Project Red marketed that, you know, my Twitter feed every day, you know, any, every, you know, changes every body and it, you know, so, and it doesn't do that at all. And it, it just feels like, you know, a nineties retread of Neuromancer and all those kinds of ideas. And then the, the dialogue and everything, um, the stories, the side quests and so on, whereas Witcher 3 was amazing and genuinely moved the medium forward. Cyberpunk feels like the TV shows I would watch in the 1990s before going out for a drink or sitting down to dinner. You know, next Gen- Star Trek Next Generation was on at 5 p.m., then 6 p.m. might be Buffy or something like that. One of these 90s shows where it's not just rough around the edges, it's kind of rough everywhere, but it's pretty cool. And that's what Cyberpunk feels like. Mm. But that's how I can understand, I think some people have just had very negative reactions off from the jump of that game, which, which, and I can see why they have it. And for me, it's weird. It's kind of weirdly nostalgic. This is like, it feels like a very 1990s vibe. Well, one, one thing that, uh, you know, we kind of discussed this, uh, not only in the last podcast we did, but also we've been talking about cyberpunk quite a bit via text over the past couple of weeks. And one of the things that you just said now, that's interesting to me is, you know, how in many ways this is a, old school GTA game. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, you know, when GTA three came out, which I believe was in 2001, that Mm -hmm. game seemed in many ways to be a culmination of gaming in the 1990s, even though it came out in the uh, next century, I think, you know, uh, over the next decade, you know, it seemed like a way for gamers to put a stamp on where games were going uh, based on what had happened in the 1990s, late 1990s, you know, um, 
not to make things weird, but uh, late 1990s uh, in wrestling was referred to as the Attitude Era. And I feel like right. that that kind of description could also be applied to a lot of other areas of culture, particularly games, where there's this attempt um, by, you know, kind of the first generation of gamers uh, who are in their teens, late teens, uh, to kind of reject what they see as the kind of kiddie version of gaming that they got from Nintendo the kind of cartoony yeah. um, games, the platform games, and to have more real games, you yes. know, games that are yes. based on real life and deal with real subjects and are kind of, um, you know, very aggro uh, in their perspective. Mm. And, you know, uh, Grand Theft Auto, uh, the original games, uh, the uh, kind of top-down games, uh, those were very, very popular among my friend group. And then when GTA 3 came out, it was kind of like, oh, this is this is the game that I've been mm-hmm. wanting for my entire life. You know, that would be the perspective of a lot of my friends. And, you know, for myself too, I mean, it was very exciting. And I think that, uh, you know, having this current cyberpunk game kind of going back to that moment, it feels uh, accurate to uh that late you know late 90s feel but then it also kind of feels accurate to the perspective that a lot of people had with regards to cyberpunk in late yeah. 20th century and what that meant uh to people uh or at least the people who were consuming it in the late uh 20th century i think um it's really interesting to put it that way because now that i'm thinking about it you know this is a game that drops f-bombs and has really edgy dialogue but edgy needs to be in quotes <laughs> but i will say and again it's coming from someone who's enjoying the game but if you can get past that, or if you can get your head into the mindset of it, you know, like when I'm watching a John Wick movie, I'm not anticipating Scorsese, you know, mm-hmm. which is not to diss the John Wick movie. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I, I like what John Wick is doing. When I get into that vibe with cyberpunk, there, I'm not that, I'm, about, I'm, I'm a few hours into the game. There have been a couple of characters already, and I just really like these characters. And I want to hang out with them. And I want to hear from them. And one of them early on, people have talked about him, his name is Jackie. Um, He's kind of a cheesy dude, but you know there are people in the world who are cheesy dudes. And and there's there was a great Twitter thread out there. It's the world we live in now, and I've forgotten the, the person's username sadly. But they wrote a really great thread about if you actually think about this as a critique of like poverty, it actually does work. And I think the cyberpunk is a little bit over the top in that regard. Um, it frankly can be cheesy about it, but the aesthetic of the game is. We effed up as a society, and in the future, life is terrible for everybody. Um, and when it when when it hits those notes, it works really well. But again, I can see why it's not hitting those notes for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the sad thing. So, so we'll we'll see. Everyone's kind of hoping that it has an expansion that is just like better than the actual game. This <laughs> kind of you know because they're the Witcher three expansions are so good. And, yeah. You know. Well, and people forget you know when the Witcher three came out. It was kind of widely panned, uh, largely yeah. because of technical issues, uh, not so much for the story, which I think is probably the mm-hmm. most distressing part of cyberpunk yeah. is that maybe the story isn't so great. Um, but, you know, The Witcher 3 had a very long shelf life, and I think it took a while for it to become considered a, a critical dar- darling. Yeah. And so maybe something can be recovered from the wreckage that is cyberpunk 2077 only only time will tell well i I will say we were talking just before we started recording um i think the main campaign so far in cyberpunk is actually really good um in in a very pulpy way it's all the other stuff just feels tacked on and i think that bums people out because witcher 3 was not that 
And the touchstone for so many people is the Bloody Baron quest line, which comes pretty early in Witcher 3. If you've played it, you remember it. If you don't, I'm not really spoiling anything. There's a character called the Bloody Baron and it gets really good. Um, and um, that doesn't seem to be happening in, in Cyberpunk. Now, if anyone's interested, I'm going to try a segue here, but I'm not a professional broadcaster. An option for a gift for somebody or for yourself would be Jason Schreier's Blood, Sweat and Pixels, which is a really excellent uh, video game uh, book on video, video game industry, which is really kind of about crunch and labor in, in video games. But he basically, every chapter is its own game. And he did such a great job. And there's a great chapter in Witcher 3. So that would be a potential gift, mm-hmm. much like the next three categories. <laughs> yeah, so our, our next category uh, is called Best Stocking Filler. Uh, this is what we call in the States a stocking stuffer. Uh, but uh, either way you put it, this is a game that um, maybe doesn't uh, cost as much as a full release, uh, but is one that you could still find a great deal of joy from uh, in the upcoming year. And so, John, why don't you share your best stocking filler? I would recommend Mobius Front 83, um, which is a fun game. I think it's kind of priced appropriately. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not a lot of work went into it, but... Um, it's a really interesting, it's from Zachtronics, who've made a bunch of just kind of interesting puzzle games. Space Chem was kind of a big game and they made that got a lot of interest. Uh, Shenzhen IO, if you may, may or may not have played, Opus Magnum, so lots of these puzzle games. And Mobius Front is kind of a puzzle game, but it looks and also kind of plays like a kind of a classic hex-based strategy game. And then the theme is basically the early 80s. It's kind of a mixture between gung-ho Reaganism in military culture slash how our movies typically depict that. Think of like the Marines and the Aliens movies, the Aliens movie, the sequel, um, slash uh, Annihilation, the recent novel slash, or the novel recently adapted into a film starring Natalie Portman, where there's kind of an existential alien threat. So there's a lot of interesting stuff on Mobius Front 83. Um, the base game itself is compelling, quite difficult sometimes, but compelling. Um, and I like it. You know, it, it, it does a really nice job of kind of, you know, you, you boot the game up and it's got a little radio set and you click into it and people are talking to each other in a way that clearly isn't meant to be realistic, but just reminds me of the classic gritty Marine from a movie set in 85, you know. Um, so totally worth a look. It's priced at $20 usually and would just be a great little thing just to grab for yourself or grab for somebody else. How about you, Bob? What, do you, what, what, what would you recommend? Yeah, my best stocking stuffer uh, is a game called Warsaw. And now this is one that we covered this year for History Respawn, but it technically came out at the end of last year. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. But uh, Warsaw is a game from a developer named Pixelated Milk. And it uh, looks at the history of the Warsaw Uprising uh, in uh, 1944 uh, against the Nazi occupation uh, in Poland, but then particularly in the city of Warsaw. And this is a game that, uh, you know, has drawn a lot of parallels in terms of gameplay to Darkest Dungeon. Uh, so it's one that is kind of designed to uh, challenge you, uh, but then it's also one that uh, is turn-based. So it's a game that you can kind of uh, pick up, uh, play a bit, and then put down and not really worry about, like, losing your spot. And I also think it's a game that, um, you know, it's gone on sale. It's one that uh, is typically priced around $20. Uh, and it's one that I think that you can get a lot of enjoyment out of and maybe not necessarily learn so much about the past. I think the game kind of 
Um, it doesn't explore much of the history beyond, uh, say, the weapons involved or uh, beyond, like, say, the geography of the city of Warsaw. Uh, maybe some of the backstories of the characters is based on history. But for the most part, it's just kind of a, uh, a breezy uh, historical uh, game that uh, does hit on some heavy topics, but does so in a way that uh, I think uh, is compelling and is especially compelling for uh, you know, uh, any kind of uh, player who's looking for something that's uh, short and sweet, you know, rather than maybe kind of a long grand epic that takes upwards of 20 hours to play. Sounds great. I, I need to play Warsaw. That sounds great. It's um, fun. Yeah. If we you were, like Darkest yeah. Dungeon, it's definitely, it's got that historical veneer to it. And, uh, you know, and I think that that's a history, uh, the history of that uprising that has gotten more attention in the last decade or so but it's still one that i feel like a lot of western uh, players and by western i mean western european uh and american mm -hmm. players probably don't know that well and uh i wouldn't say that this game does a lot of that historical heavy lifting but at the same time it's something that you know it might pique your interest this game might pique your interest mm -hmm. in that history and it might lead to some more knowledge yeah and it, sh it shifts the question of the Holocaust and the war in Poland away from what it's kind of always on, mm -hmm. which is what it's always on is a good thing to always sure. be on. But sure. Um, well, our next category was, uh, you know, a gift for the person in your life who found history boring in school, very controversial, Bob. We had a real problem here uh, <laughs> deciding on what we thought was the most accessible game. It's a game that's particularly close to your heart. Why don't you share with us? We, we both agreed on, on a game that you should totally get somebody. Yeah. So John and I Maybe are sitting here history. looking at a shared uh, Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. That's got our answers for it. And both of us for this category picked Hades, uh, which is the game from uh, the developer Supergiant. Uh, they were known for <clears throat> their kind of uh, finely created uh, games, uh, including Transistor, uh, Bastion, uh, some of these in incredible tiles with great uh, artwork uh, and also uh, writing. And Hades is a game that I think brings all those elements together in a historical setting. You know, it is one that uh, is based in the Greek underworld. Uh, it pays a lot of attention to Greek mythology. Uh, and it does so in a really compelling way. I mean, I think this is a game, we'll talk more about it maybe in a later category, <laughs> but it's a game that has captivated, uh, you know, the gaming audience in general. And it was one that was in early release and there was some uh, good buzz around it last year, I think when it started in early release. But then this year, when it was finally released uh, 1.0, I believe in September, it just kind of took off and it, um, you know, was praised not only for the usual super giant things like artwork and narrative, but then also gameplay. Uh, and it is a really compelling roguelike game uh, that rewards players who go back and replay it over and over and over again. And uh, this is a game that, uh, according to Epic Game Store, I've put in five days of my life into. <laughs> and uh, that is really depressing, but also uh, five days well spent, I would say. Um, you know, I don't regret a minute of it. And this is a game I think that... Um, is something that uh, works as a game for people who found history boring in school because it gives a human face and a human voice uh, to a lot of these uh, elements from Greek mythology. And, uh, you know, John and I were talking about uh, this game 
prior to recording and talking about how much uh, emphasis there are on you know how sexy uh, the characters <laughs> in the game sound. Uh, and it's a game that I think you know appeals to many different interests, uh, not only in terms of gameplay, but then also in terms of narrative, uh, and then in terms of horniness. Right? I mean, uh, <laughs> we've all got needs, and so uh, this is just a really easy uh, game to recommend. And it's such, it's such a great achievement in so many ways because it's kind of you know this happens a lot I think with 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 games and films and books that are good at this. You know, they're a lot of the stuff they're doing with their characters. They're serving their story first and entertaining first. But you bring in people who are experts in Greek mythology and everything else, and they're not, they're not, you know, they're not flaunting things. Like they're not, you know, they're taking actual perceptions of these figures, the gods and so on, thousands of years ago, and they're just kind of putting a spin on them or a twist on them. But they're just building on them, and that was really impressive. You know, I think Supergiant. I don't think they've. I personally don't think they've made a bad game. I do think some of their games have been better than others. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting Hades to be their best game. Um, and I had it in early access. And, you know, Bob, you would ask me, how is that? I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And it was it was a game that was pretty good as soon as it came in early access. But what has really impressed me about it is um, it just kept getting better. Yeah. You know? And Hades 1.0 is so much better than the early access game, which, which was a good game. Um, and then the other thing about it is, one of the great surprises of my life in the last six years is that I've gotten into difficult games like Souls-like games and things like that and uh, roguelike games or roguelite, whichever you prefer to call it, which is very much what Hades is. But Hades is really welcoming for people who don't typically play those kind of games. You throw mm. on God mode or whatever it is and just enjoy it. And by some miracle, it doesn't get, it, it's still, you're still getting that level of excitement that the quote-unquote hardcore players are getting. Or at least mm. I feel you are, or certainly close to it. Mm. It's it's an awesome game. Yeah, and I would say too that it's a surprise that this is their best game, but it, I think it's clearly Supergiant's best game, um, and that's coming from somebody who's played um, all of Bastion. I played all of Pyre as well. Uh, kind of bounced off of Transistor, uh, but that is also a really well made game. And this this one I feel like just brings all those various elements that they've excelled at in other titles and just brings them all together, just kind of a perfect package. I just I adore this game. <laughs> well we we'll talk about it more yeah we will all right so our next category is most dad friendly game and uh this one uh was created by john so i'll let him go first but i think this is a really good category because uh, you know this time of year you always get historians um uh, you know in my life on facebook but then also uh in um on Twitter or other social media platforms talking about, uh, you know, books that they would recommend for people to buy for their dad or for their uncle, right? As somebody who enjoys history and loves to just sit down and quietly read a book uh, about the Battle of Stalingrad. Well, <laughs> these uh, games that we've got here, they're kind of designed to replace those book experiences with something more interactive. Yeah, no, exactly. And this kind of idea that what – which one is called a quote unquote history buff. So, you know, whether it's your, you know, like whether it's your dad or your cousin or your daughter, you know, like in, in popular culture, they get called the dad or the uncle. Right. And my, my dad is, is this guy. My dad is the one who sits down. It's like, you know, that unless, unless, unless I can injure a human with this book, I'm not sure if I want to really commit to it, you know, mm -hmm. like the size of it. So I, I cheated a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, 
maybe some listeners who have heard podcasts before would think this is where he breaks out Crusader Kings 3. You know, Crusader Kings 3 is not actually, I don't think is quite the fit for this category um, because it doesn't do what Bob is talking about. It's not making that little transition over from kind of what the quote unquote history dad is usually reading. So I went for Hearts of Iron 4 which is another Paradox game. And I cheated a little bit by saying, well, you get them battled for the Bosphorus, uh, which came out this year and kind of makes it a 2020 game. But what I would encourage you to do, if there's someone in your life who you'd kind of, particularly if you'd be interested in maybe trying to get them to see why you play games, um, that Hearts of Iron 4 might appeal to them. And, and depending on how it goes, especially with the sales coming up, um, I would actually probably say Man the Guns probably the, my pick mm. of the DLC. Mm. There's You can use the internet to find DLC you think would appeal to you. Um, Waking the Tiger is very useful for so many people who care about China, for example. But the basic game of Hearts of Iron 4, um, it's not as hard to get into as it seems. But if you're the kind of person who knows what kinds of aircraft carriers the US produced after Pearl Harbor or who is really interested in the Battle of Midway or who is genuinely intrigued to kind of the massive state-led effort to, to use human productivity and manufacturing to effectively wage a war, that person will really like Hearts of Iron mm-hmm. 4. And I think that of all the Paradox games, I actually think, and the fact that it's World War II doesn't hurt, um, it, it really it, I great, think it just great dad friendly topic yeah. yeah it just really taps into that vibe and it's the kind of game where you know like the first game I ever played Hearts Iron 4 um, I you can start in 1936 or 1939 and I did what the British famous he didn't do which is I started to, you know preparing for a war and I massed my troops all along the German border and the Germans went through the Benelux countries and got me from behind somehow anyway which made me laugh very hard that I did that um, but it tickled my own history buff bone so that would that be my call. Hearts of Iron 4 plus a DLC just to be generous. Yeah. I, that's what I would do. Well, and I think it's great. Uh, it's a great recommendation because Hearts of Iron 4, um, I think these days is going for about 40 bucks. And mm-hmm. the DLC are usually $10 a piece. So, it, you know, if varies, you're thinking yeah. about one of those uh, big hardcover uh, history books that you might get an uncle or a dad – or if you're thinking about, um, you know, a big coffee table book, I mean, that's in the same price range. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that uh, it could be the case that maybe they have the base game already, in which case, you know, maybe you could get them a couple of the DLC. Yeah. And I think that's what's one of the fun things about Paradox and the way that they set up their DLC is that you can um, go in many different directions, you know, based on the interests that you have in the conflict. You know, with Hearts of Iron, you've got, um, you know, I think it's at least half a dozen DLC packs now that can take the mm-hmm. game in various different directions, like you said, John. And I think that that's really great. And it's it's almost like, um, you know, I don't know. You've got these historians, these popular historians who write about World War II all the time, but then they come out with a different book looking at a different aspect of it. And, you know, again, if we're comparing it to those kind of dad-friendly uh, books, that I think Paradox Games fits into that with the way that they treat uh, DLC. What about you, Bob? What did you pick? So I picked a game that I just started playing this past week, uh, and it is a game called Radio General, and it is from a developer named Foolish Mortals. Uh, And this is a studio that is out of Canada. And so Radio General is a real-time strategy game in which you use your voice uh, to give uh, commands to units. Uh, And the focus of the game is on the Second World War, 
and it is uh, focused on the Canadian uh, side of the Second World War. So uh, you are following the Canadians as they help to uh, defend the Commonwealth, uh, the beginning of the war, going to Britain, uh, participating in early raids. And at this point in the game, I am in the midst of uh, the invasion of Italy uh, by the Allies in 1943. Uh, and it is a tremendous game. And I wish <laughs> that this is a game that I'd gotten to earlier because I definitely would have covered it uh, for History Respawn. But at least now I get to talk about it uh, before the next year, in which I will definitely do an episode on this game. And, and what makes it so great is, and what makes it such a dad friendly game, is that it covers the Second World War, right? Great dad friendly topic. <laughs> Uh, but it does so uh, in kind of a dad-friendly RTS mode. Uh, and so the way it works is that uh, you use voice commands <clears throat> to direct your units around a map uh, that is set before you. And you can pause the action at any point to kind of make your decisions on what to do. And the action never really gets that complicated, um, which I would say, you know, for maybe more serious war gamers, it's kind of uh, to its detriment. But uh, for somebody who is maybe not as uh, uh, as flexible or as well-versed in real-time strategy games or in war games in general, it's a really easy game to pick up and use and to use your voice uh, in order to give commands. And it's also got like really fun dad-centric touches. Uh, so for instance, uh, if you were to go online and look at um, images for this game, you've got the map, uh, you've got the kind of old-style radio in front of you. Uh, and you've got the clock where you can pause the game and then you've got your units uh, splayed out on uh, this map. But in addition to those map pieces uh, in your units, you've also on the side, you've got a, uh, a little glass of brandy uh, that you can pick up and kind of swirl around. Uh, and there's also a pipe uh, that you can pick up uh, and use while you're playing the game. So it's just kind of a fun uh, uh, game. It's kind of got these fun touches. And then in terms of history... You know, if you've got a dad or an uncle who's really interested in the past, really interested in this history, uh, the game includes a lot of uh, original documents uh, taken from uh, archives in Canada, and then also uh, original uh, newsreels, Canadian newsreels uh, from the Second World War. And all of these are kind of presented to you in the run up to whatever campaign or battle you're about to enter. So it'll give you. Uh, kind of primary source documents, really short primary source documents that you can look at as you're preparing uh, to plan your campaign. Uh, and then after the campaign, whether you win or lose, uh, it gives you, you know, kind of what really happened and uh, some of the images as well as the newsreels uh, that came out from that. And so it's just a, it's just a wonderful package. Uh, and I believe it's only uh, $20. I have to check the price again, but it's just a fantastic game, and I cannot wait to play more of this game going into the future. I've played three hours so far. I think the campaign takes about six hours, um, but it's just an amazing game, and I wish I had covered it uh, this year. But unfortunately, it came out in April, uh, and I had gotten a, a review copy from the developers. I said I'd try to get to it in June. That obviously didn't happen, so... <laughs> Mea culpa, I will try to do better uh, this next year, but it is just a fantastic game, fantastic history game, and one that I think would go over really well uh, for the dad or uncle uh, or other middle life uh, adult male in your life. 
That's awesome. Now I want to get Radio General. So this is kind of <laughs> between that and Panzer Corps too. I've got World War Two <laughs> sorted out. So we move on to best character here. Uh, shall I go first? Yeah, please do. Going back to you then. So for best character, I picked Ryuzo from Ghost of Tsushima, and Ghost of Tsushima is. So I'm, I might talk. I will talk about it a bit later on. Um, but I, what I'll say about it is an interesting game. Is that I didn't. Um, the game has actually grown on me. So if you look at someone like, so like Gene Park talked about this. He he's the he's uh, he leads the video game coverage for the Washington Post. And when this game came out, he I remember him tweeting like days after, he's like, "I'm still playing Ghost of Tsushima. Like <laughs> I can't stop playing this game." And the review went online three days ago. And I remember at the time going, oh, "Okay," and I got it partly to cover for history spawn, partly because I was interested. And a similar thing happened with me. And so they recently introduced um, this online co-op version and it's it's a squad game but i wish and i know this is a silly wish because they can't just magically do this i would have loved a red dead redemption gta online style online for this game just to tool around medieval japan with some friends because that's where the games is the strongest now one of the weak points i think for the game is that you know the main story is a bit you know it's okay <laughs> and and i think that <laughs> there was some legitimate concern or criticism of the fact that there was a lot of emphasis on honor in a game with all these Asian characters. I actually think that Valhalla helped Tsushima a little bit because their white Nordic protagonists had the exact same motivations as Jin Sakai has in Ghost of Tsushima. And so I think it kind of helped people understand, oh, it's a video game problem as much as anything else. Like these are just, these are these are useful tropes to hang an entire game around. So the reason I like Ryuzo is, um, and these are kind of spoiler-ish, I don't want to go too far into spoilers, but if you really maybe speed forward uh, maybe three or four minutes in the podcast um, if you want to play the game yourself and haven't started it. Um, you kind of befriend him early and you're kind of frenemies. You've known each other since you were boys and you kind of became a samurai and he didn't. He became a ronin and kind of fell in with the ronin and kind of became their leader. And he turns on you at the end of quote-unquote act one. The game is blocked off in very specific phases before the map opens up. And he turns on you and basically does it kind of out of bitterness kind of basically at a good old-fashioned, this makes sense for me financially to do this. And there's also an element of, you know, I can't really sit here and wait for you to redeem your honor when I have people to feed here, you know? And all of that is done in a way that is still well within a pretty, what sort of looking for, um, you know, conservative, I guess, storyline of, you know, revenge and everything else. But Ryuzo brings texture to that, um, in a way that was really welcome and I think kind of really adds to the story and does elevate it past some of those critiques that that are that are not wrong per se, but Ryuzo definitely brings wrinkles into it. Mm. And then in addition to all of that, the character, you know, the basic work of this game was of such high quality. The voice acting is really good. Um, his character has been designed really well. Um, and you duel Ryuzo and duels are a big thing in Ghost of Tsushima and your duel with him, like that, that just worked for me narratively mm -hmm. in a way that I wasn't kind of expecting. So I was really happy. So he's my favorite. He's my character of the year in many ways because he kind of, he helps to elevate the game past what otherwise it might've kind of fallen into. Awesome. Yeah. That's great to hear. I love to hear too, that, you know, he's able to kind of alleviate some of those problems that you had with the narrative. I think that's interesting how, you know, one character can kind of help that issue a bit. Yeah, and he kind of he kind of sticks out that way. Yeah. How, how about you, Bob? Who's your favorite character? Uh, my favorite character comes from Hades. Big surprise. Uh, my <laughs> favorite character is the god Dionysus, uh, who is the god of wine, 
And he's presented in the game uh, by a, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a figure who looks like he fell out of the set for um, Anchorman uh, with <laughs> Ron Burgundy. Uh, you know, he just looks sloshed in wine. Uh, he's semi-drunk. Uh, he's got a great voice actor uh, who's just like, hey, man, you know, what's up? <laughs> and uh, he is um, somebody who definitely listens to Yacht Rock uh, on the regular <laughs> and I think that the voice actor uh, is really good. I think that the way they present the character is just spot on. Um, I think that Dionysus also has some of the best boons uh, to offer the character. And so uh, if you're not familiar with Hades, it's a roguelike game in which you receive um, kind of uh, power-ups from the Greek gods to try to escape uh, the Greek underworld, try to escape Hades. And so the boons that Dionysus offers you are some of the best in the games. They, uh, they include things like Hangover, uh, which uh, damages enemies after you've hit them. Uh, so it gives them kind of an extra damage at the end. Um, and then also he's got a really great uh, boon for your uh, special. Or is it special or is it the cast? I think it's the cast uh, in the game where uh, you fire your cast and it uh, hits the enemy with Festive Fog, which is kind of this... Um, uh, ginned up fog that uh, discombobulates uh, the enemies as though they're drunk at a party uh, and it's got a great animation that attack has got a great animation it's got a great sound uh, as well um, and it hits the enemies for a lot of damage uh, and so great voice acting great artwork for this character and kind of the best boons in the game at least for uh, my sake and um, in addition to all of that um, and we had gone into this a little bit uh, with Dr. Kate Cook on the episode uh, that we did about Hades this year. But in addition to all that, uh, Dionysus is also kind of one of the more further explored gods in the game, uh, largely because in Greek mythology, uh, there's a bit of confusion as to whether or not uh, the main character from Hades, Zagreus, is not a, just another name for Dionysus. And so in the episode we did on Hades, uh, Kate had brought this idea up and it was like, oh, I'm a little disappointed they didn't do this in the game. And at that point, I was about 25 hours in and a young pup in terms of playing <laughs> Hades. And I was like, yeah, you know, that would be fun. And so then shortly thereafter, after I'd beaten the game uh, and about five hours after that, the game starts to come up with new dialogue from Dionysus in which they explore this very idea. So it's a character that they've paid a lot of attention to. It's one that's got great boons, but then also they've kind of done the extra research to kind of explore these ideas of the relationship uh, historically uh, between Zagreus and Dionysus in Greek mythology. So I think I don't want to spoil that too much, but it's, it's really fun. It's really great. And uh, he adds a lot to the game. And like you say, you know, I love how his boons are so like thematically they work and they're just fun. I I'm sickened by what an amazing job they did with the characters in that yeah, game. Yeah, that's I, incredible. At one at one point, I was sitting there going, "So, which of the Hades characters should I pick?" That was actually at one point <laughs> that was my thinking, and I, then I kind of then Ryuzo kind of reminded me, and I was like, "No, I'm going to go with him." And I want to throw in if it's an honorable mention. I I like Hypnos actually. Mm. I think he's my favorite character um voiced by greg Casavin, who i've been reading i've been reading Casavin's work since i was like for 20 years mm -hmm. he used to be using GameSpot way back when you know um and 
they've taken this concept of this guy greets you every time you die, which is a lot. And I don't know. I just I just love the way that character has been crafted. And mm-hmm. and and that whole for the if you haven't played Hades yet, um, every time you die and you die a lot, that's the point of the game. You're resurrected and you go through kind of the same kind of greeting kind of channel past Hypnos towards um, towards your father, basically, with Cerberus on his right and sometimes Nyx is on his left. And so there's this this constant repeat. Um, and I've never rushed through it. Mm-hmm. Like I always stop and interact with Hypnos, you know, <laughs> like every time. And I that's that's just amazing. That's yeah. Just amazing. I like uh... Uh, I shouldn't spoil it. I won't do it, but there's some really great dialogue for Hypnos when you get to the in-game uh, mm. portion of it. Uh, when you're kind of uh, finally trying to escape Hades, um, he's got some great dialogue when you come back dead. Uh, it's really it's really pretty fun. I have to confess, I need to get back into Hades. So. Uh, <laughs> and so how about you, Bob? Did you have any kind of runners-up for best character? I did. Um, so this leads us into our next topic, actually, uh, which is our next category, I should say, which is history topic we learned the most about uh, this year. And we both have the same answer, which is Greek mythology. Uh, and that relates to Hades, but then it also relates to uh, Troy, a total war saga. So I've been calling it Troy total war and uh, my secondary honorable mention character of the year uh, was Agamemnon uh, from total war Troy uh, who I've learned quite a bit about uh, from the live stream that I did with Dr. Kate Cook uh, and Kate kind of explained Agamemnon's backstory the perspective that historians and classicists have on Agamemnon and it was really a great deal of uh, information that I got from her but then it's also stuff that you know she had mentioned that is brought up quite a bit by the game and it's a perspective that is portrayed to a certain extent by Total War Troy. And, you know, I would say that uh, the Total War series is one that's kind of gotten away from me. I think that John, you are kind of more steeped in that series than I am. Um, I haven't really gotten into uh, that series in quite a while, but Total War Troy, I thought was uh, a great example of a game that uh, is uh, reasonably priced one that offers a lot of replayability and at the same time I think includes uh, kind of interesting touches to get people interested in uh, the history of Greece but then in particular in Greek mythology and you know Hades of course as we talked about on the previous category of you know game you would recommend to people who found history boring Hades does the exact same thing with Greek mythology and so uh, I just think that it's been a big year uh, for Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. And this comes after uh, having Assassin's Creed Odyssey um, in the previous year. So, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's a big deal. It's having yeah. a, a real boom period, I guess you could say. <laughs> well, I, I wrote in our Google doc, I've written Greek mythology comma somehow, because I feel like this is not, <laughs> you know, you know, it's not exactly a, a topic that hasn't been visited, which mm-hmm. actually kind of increases the level of difficulty to do it. Well, yes. I think what's interesting about Troy to comment briefly this is something the Total War games have been doing. Three Kingdoms was kind of a, a dramatic leap in that direction. But this they've made a decision, which I think was a good idea long-term, to make a bit of a change to their design ethos for how the game works, um, to, to allow you to be, have a slightly more kind of, quote-unquote, in, in video game language, like a hero-based kind of a game, as it were, like, like the Warcraft 3 leap from what I now realize is almost 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> but but narratively as well, um, it allows them to step away from the co- the kind of grognard. This is how the battle went, type historian. Which, by the way, we love you and we, you you mean the world to us. Don't get me wrong. Um, 
but also allow players to kind of engage with more kind of history. It's about interpretation and 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 kind of enjoy it more. And again, yeah, I think Hades just um, you know builds on that enormously um, to the extent where maybe you know Hades is the underworld. But if you knew nothing else with Greek mythology, you would actually come out of twenty hours of Hades knowing more about it, and I think would be more likely to read about it. And that's, I mean, that's happened a, a bit with me. I realized I hadn't actually, all my Greek mythology knowledge is from um, my school yeah, as a child. Same here. Um, and so Hades has kind of reinvigorated that interest in what is an amazing, you can see why Western civilizations are so obsessed with Greek mythology. Yes. Yes, so definitely. Long, yeah. You know. And, you know, I think the games this year, uh, Total War Troy and Hades, they approach that history in very different ways, but they're very compelling ways. You know, Hades is kind of a, a family drama set against a roguelike game. And then Total War Troy is uh, one of these grand strategy, uh, kind of half RTS, half uh, civilization game uh, that also adopts a lot of uh, Greek history, but then also Greek mythology with uh, kind of the supernatural elements that are added into uh, the game, uh, either through the RTS sections or through the kind of grand strategy sections. So um, both very different games, but both, I think, offering players kind of uh, compelling views on Greek mythology. And, you know, I think, like you said, this has piqued my interest in learning more about it. And it could very well be the case that I will be the future recipient of a dad book uh, on Greek <laughs> mythology. Hopefully not, not this year, but you know, in years to come, you know. Well, I'm going to try another segue. So stand back. Oh, uh, okay. Make way. <laughs> when I teach history video games next January, um, God willing, all being well, the state of the world right now, January 2022, um, I am 100% booting up Hades in the classroom. Yes. And we are 100% going to look at a couple of those characters and talk our way through it. I don't know that I would assign it to people per se. Maybe I would, um, you know, but it would involve maybe buying a Switch or having a decent PC. Um, but we'll definitely be be looking at it. And of course, Bob, you and I use a lot of video games in the classroom, but there have been a few this year. Maybe you're slightly a better fit for that. Um, I'm not sure. I guess. I guess me. I, let, <laughs> let, let me let me go first because you go first. I, so I I, in case the listener yeah. is confused about the category, we are talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm best sorry. game for the history classroom from 2020. I, Thank you, Bob. Sorry. This is like the, the old Oscar shows like in the 70s where one of them was drunk. The other one is like, <laughs> okay, I'll, all right, Jack, I'll, uh, I'll let me come in. Um, so I'm, yeah. So I, I cheated. I picked Atentat 1942. Um, and I cheated through ignorance because I didn't realize the game went out three years. God forgive me. Um, well, I think it was, to be fair to you, I think it was out in the Czech Republic uh, three years ago. And I'm not oh, okay. sure if it was out in the States three years ago. But, but I really became much more familiar with this game um, through Bob's coverage of the game and kind of subsequent looking it in, into it myself. Um, and I had honorable mentions like Valhalla and Crusader Kings 3, um, which for me are kind of both very strong examples of a kind of a game that I'll put up in the classroom and we'll all talk through it, right? Like I'll grab one of the students, say, all right, you know, Billy, right, or Jenny, here, you jump up here, you control the character for us. The rest of us are going to talk about the game as you're playing it. That's typically how we do it in those classes. Um, and Crusader Kings 3 is a bit of a challenge, but Adentad is a, is a different vibe to it, in particular because the fascinating way they've used those interviews and that kind of primary source type vibe, and they've they foregrounded that in a way, not just that I think is really interesting, but honestly that I think would be useful. Yeah. Um, and, and I could really get students to dig into that 
Um, and in fact, it might be particularly good for our classes because, you know, if we're doing Valhalla and you're running around fighting English people or whatever, and we're talking about, what do you think about the way they're representing this, this Viking character and so on? Um, the students then are asked to make the leap to their own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and making that leap is an important part of what the class is trying to do. But having a game like Atendat 1942 is going to be so useful to like to help them make the leap and and give them a sense of what that link, what those linkages look like and how else they can manifest. So mm-hmm. I'm really happy that game exists and I think they should be very proud of the work they did. And I'm looking forward to using it. Yeah. And it's such a great game because I think it gets to uh, a topic that maybe isn't as commonly seen in U.S. history courses, you know, especially with relation to the Second World War you know, the nature of Nazi occupation in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, um, you know, what that looked like and what it meant for uh, the people living through it, uh, not just in terms of things like the Holocaust, which I think are pretty well covered uh, in U.S. history courses. We could use some more work, obviously, but uh, cover things like uh, collaboration and resistance. And, you know, I think we both agree that Greek mythology was the history topic we learned the most about this year. But I would say coming in in second place is resistance uh, in uh, World War II. You know, I played Warsaw this year. I played uh, Aditat 1942. Um, I also uh, played another game that's escaping me right now that was about resistance in the Second World War. Uh, But another big year for that kind of history and that kind of uh, narrative, which I think uh, is one that's common for um, maybe history books, history courses related to Central and Eastern Europe, but it's not at all common, I think, from you know the type of histories that you and I are familiar with and you and I have taught uh, in the mm-hmm. past. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, like you said, great game for um, you know students to uh, get a handle on and kind of think about how they could present their research through a game. But then also I think the subject matter itself is really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, to think of, I, I'm not sure how much it's true in the United States, certainly growing up in Ireland, you know who the French resistance were, mm-hmm. and you get this very kind of Charles de Gaulle authored um, version of that, yeah. um, which is which is not to throw shade at the French resistance at all, but it's astonishing you think of like only, you know, the other side of Germany, mm-hmm. which if you to transpose Europe onto the United States, it's like, you know, I don't know, I guess you're like from Missouri to New York or something, they're not, you know. These places are not galaxies away from each other by any such imagination. Mm-hmm. Finally, we're getting to learn, you know, learn more about them. Yeah, and um, so what did you pick, Bob? What yeah, so the resistance game that I forgot <laughs> <laughs> that I played this year is actually my nomination for best <laughs> game for the history classroom, uh, and that game is Through the Darkest of Times, uh, which came from the developer uh, Paint Bucket Games, uh, and this is one that came out at the very beginning of this year, and I covered it. Uh, for History Respawn episode, I think just as the pandemic uh, was started and we were in isolation. And uh, this was a game that uh, was somewhat of a comfort uh, to play because, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of isolation, I was like, well, thank God I'm not living in Germany uh, during the (laughs) 1930s. (laughs) Uh, But this is a game that uh, attempts to depict uh, a, the uh, German-based resistance to the Nazi regime uh, starting in Berlin in 1933. And you play uh, over the course of the 1930s going into the Second World War uh, as uh, the leader of a German-based, Berlin-based uh, resistance group 
to Nazi Germany, to Hitler's regime. And it is a game that has got, uh, I think, pretty strong narrative elements, uh, you know, pretty well written um, uh, stories, side stories. Um, it has these moments where it, um, you know, depicts uh, famous events uh, in Germany during the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, and it's one that is all wrapped around this kind of strategy game that I would say it doesn't work very well. I'm not a big fan of the kind of moment to moment action in this game, uh, or the strategy elements, but at the same time, I think that the game is really strong narratively with regards to, uh, resistance, what resistance looks like. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why the strategy elements of this game don't work so well is because they're designed not to work very well in the sense that it's a game with a message and the message is that you know resistance to these types of regimes uh, like nazi germany uh, like hitler's germany uh, was very difficult uh, nearly impossible and so uh, your level of frustration with the way that the game uh doesn't work in terms of strategy, I think is an artifact of that difficulty. It's trying to relay a historical message through its gameplay. And I think it does that message work really well. Fascinating. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. You know, um, I've talked to a paradox games a lot the last couple of years. And for me, the transformative moment of Crusader Kings three in particular, or two, I should say, um, followed up in three is, um, learning to be okay with things going badly, you know, and that was a real challenge with those games because if you want to play Trader Kings 2, for example, like a Civ game, um, sometimes it works out that way, but it doesn't always. Then you can find out actually it's a, it's a lot of fun, but it's, it, it's a challenge because, you know, with history books, for example, both books kind of written more for students and books written for a wider audience, you know, there are flawed books and it's true in fiction too, right? There's flawed things you come out kind of liking. Um, and as you where video games have this extra level, I think, like you say, is that artifact of that. It's kind of fascinating. It's almost simulating a sensation of this futility, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is fascinating. It's mm -hmm. fascinating to me, you know, mm -hmm. it's so interesting. Yeah. And I, I think that's intentional. And, um, you know, our scholarly guest on the episode, uh, Dr. Ned Richardson little, uh, he had the same, perspective as well as that you know these strategy elements were frustrating because they were supposed to be um right and i think that this is a game that's easy to recommend for the classroom uh because it is something that'll run on anything you know when you think about logistics mm -hmm. of giving games to players um it'll run on anything and uh it's something that is relatively cheap you know particularly compared to some of the AAA titles that people might be uh, interested in giving students, you know, your Assassin's Creeds, your Civilizations, um, you know, these games that we've recommended here, I think, uh, fit the classroom better, not only because of subject matter, uh, not only because of mechanics, but also because of logistics and price. Because, you know, when I've taught this type of class, when you've taught this type of class, mm -hmm. you know, those logistical elements can't be ignored. You know, it's not like a book where you just, oh, mm -hmm. just go to the library or go to the bookstore and get this book. Right. Um, right. It's not that easy when it comes to these games. And if you're a teacher or if you know a teacher, I mean, certainly I'm sure you have colleagues, Bob. I have colleagues who kind of, they see some of the stuff I'm doing and they're interested in dipping their toe into it. And, you know, especially if you're, you know, an adult college professor or high school teacher or whatever, 
who's who hasn't played video games since you were a teenager or something like that um that logistical stuff can be incredibly intimidating even at that early point they're just doing the research to see if they want to do it in their classes so mm-hmm. you're listening and you've thought about it if you're a teacher yourself or if you know somebody again i think both of these games are easy to get a hold of and like you say bob run, run on anything which is yeah interesting. yeah so the next category is our um our most anticipated game of the coming year. I have a lot of anticipation about 2021. <laughs> <A lot of> hope <laughs> I think we all do in general, not do. just for history games. Yeah. Oh my word. Um, but on the video game front, 2020 was a great year for video games, but I think 21 is shaping up quite well as well. Uh, what are you looking forward to the most, Bob, in terms of history games for next year? Yeah, I'm looking forward to Amplitude's Humankind. Um, and this is a game that uh, was pushed out of 2020 and uh, was pushed into April of 2021. So it'll be coming out uh, at a good time for me. You know, that's at the kind of end of the semester here in the States. And so I'll be able to jump into that game, hopefully, you know, in May uh, and begin to play it. And, you know, again, we've talked a lot about Humankind so far, uh, you know, this year. And I think also we started talking about it last year. And it's a, one of these grand strategy games, a 4X games in the mold of Civilization, but it's one that is actively trying to break that mold set by Sid Meier's Civilization. And, you know, we had a lot of coverage of Civilization in wider public this year. Sid Meier came out with his uh, memoirs, kind of a lot of celebration about his games uh, in general. But I think there's a lot of eagerness uh, through humankind and then uh through old world uh you know another one of these 4x games uh there's a lot of enthusiasm to try to to change that uh to try to change uh the perspective on god games on 4x games grand strategy games and to maybe not necessarily go after civilization's crown but maybe add some uh, flavor uh to this uh, genre which i think uh, is that threat to becoming, you know, pretty stale? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think if you were, um, uh, maybe not interested in 4X, it's probably because you're just not interested in civilization. So maybe these, uh, games like Humankind can offer an alternative, uh, uh perspective on that genre and a different play style. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that it's good and I'm really looking forward to playing it. Yeah, if it, if it ends up being the pro Evo to Civilizations FIFA, I think we all win. <laughs> our uh, our back. It's a long time ago now when there were two K football games. Yes, uh, yes. You know, I think that's a better comparison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I very nearly picked Humankind. I have everything Amplitude have ever done. I've enjoyed. They are they do phenomenal stuff, and I'm excited about Humankind. Uh, I would give a shout out also to Old World. Yes. Um, uh, they were very kind to kind of to give us some review copies. Look at we did a little bit of coverage. We're gonna do some more when it comes out. That's an interesting kind of game. It's a different spin, but in a, in a very deliberately more focused kind of way. We talked about that game as well before, but I'm quite excited about um, Old World, and I wish them. I really do wish them all the best. King's Bounty Two, which is a sequel. King's Bounty was a game. I guess it's quite old now, which is kind of a might and magic type game where you roam around this. 3d map and then it breaks out into these hex-based kind of strategy battles that's more kind of a personal note um that i really enjoyed the first king's bounty but also i'm always intrigued in kind of how these fantasy games can be tied into what historians like to think about which is a mini segue into what i chose which was horizon forbidden west (laughs) now um horizon oh god what was the first horizon zero dawn 
Thank you. Horizon Zero Dawn. It's okay. I've got it tattooed um, on my arm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, PlayStation exclusive sci-fi game. We never really got around to covering it in great detail, but you know, um, that game really kind of explored historical illusions and and kind of embraced its own its own roots in historical stories in ways that I thought were really well done and really engaging um, in sense of the, the, the kind of some of the things it wanted to say about how human cultures are kind of trying to form. There's kind of an Aztec analog uh, group at one point. Um, and then when it brings in, it's kind of really heavy sci-fi elements, like it's Assassin's Creed type stuff. You want to think about it that way. It all holds together in a way that just feels like this is really interesting to me. And even though it's an original story and it's science fiction and everything else, there's such a clear uh, debt here to an historical awareness. Mm -hmm. I sound pretentious now, but like to, to this kind of, to this recognition of how we construct our histories and our past. And the Horizon games, I hope it's true for the sequel as well, I think they really get that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really enjoyed that in Horizon Zero Dawn. So I'm really looking forward to Horizon Forbidden West. And uh, hopefully hopefully we'll continue to deliver on that. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do some coverage for the website. Yeah. Zero Dawn, one of my favorite PlayStation games of all time. I really wanted to cover it for uh, History Respawn, just never got around to it. Maybe we'll make up on that this year. But, you know, I think like you said, it's one that uh, – obviously science fiction elements, but uh, it's one that's got a really good sense of history and uh, a, it's got a good sense of, you know, how we think about historical memory, right? Uh, and, and, you know, what kind of artifacts, uh, what kind of archaeology will we leave behind for mm -hmm. uh, subsequent generations and how will that inform how they view us? And I think that that game has got that idea in abundance and it's one that historians think about all the time and so it's it's a compelling game for that reason but it's also on top of that uh, i think a really excellent open world uh setup that they've got from zero dawn and i i would expect forbidden west to kind of build upon that so yeah really looking forward to it i hope i finally get a hand uh, <laughs> my hands on a playstation 5 so i can play it but uh yeah really looking forward to that game yeah, I'll have to um, make that work as well. And on a pure video game fan note, one of the most pleasant surprises of my video game fandom life was Horizon Zero Dawn. Because I remember seeing going, yeah, the dinosaurs look cool. I, yeah, maybe. We'll see. And then I, I got it and so much better than I ever expected it to be. So I, I, I am, I'm pretty hype with the sequel. So, so you know... Um, so speaking of which then, so we're kind of, I, I like this category, Bob, and I had to text you back to get you to explain it to me because I didn't quite understand okay. first to the text. Well, I can explain so, it now if you want. Yeah, why don't, that's, yeah, why don't you do that? 2020's History Game in 2021, Bob. So talk us through what that is. Okay, so this is, uh, the idea here is this is a game, a history game from 2020, so released uh, this year, that you expect to be playing a lot more of in the upcoming year. And I like the idea of this category because this is a game that maybe you didn't get to uh, largely because of the pandemic that you're really looking forward to playing more of in 2021 when you've got a bit more time and you know i think this is a, a category that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense to our listeners but for john and i you know who <laughs> had day jobs uh, had kids at home that we had to actively mm -hmm. take care of and manage uh with our significant others to try to you know fit in work and childcare at the same time 
it was really difficult to play a lot of these games. You know, I, I mentioned previously, I really wish I had had time to play Radio General uh, back during the year, but I just didn't have time. Uh, and I'm really disappointed that. And so these are games that uh, we came into contact this year, but we're expecting to play more uh, next year. And my nomination for this category uh, was uh, Mohawk Games uh, Old World, which, as John mentioned, we got in early access uh, this fall. Uh, but, you know, I think it's supposed to go uh, into 1.0 maybe sometime next year, 2021. But they'll continually add content to it uh, over the course of this next year. And, you know, we had uh, brought up this idea, or at least I had brought it up, of, you know, historical time periods that even as modern historians were kind of interested in as kind of a hobby. And I was like, well, you know, Dark Age, uh, you know, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, not really my bag. But the uh, setting for Old World. Um, you know, kind of this uh, Mediterranean world and, uh, you know, extended Mediterranean world during, uh, you know, the ancient time period. This is one that is really interesting to me and uh, is the basis for this game. And I'm really excited to to dive back into it uh, next year, even though this year I really only had time to play a couple hours of it uh, before I had to put it down and you know, go take care of kids or teach classes. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's one that I'm really excited uh, to see more of and to see how they build upon it during the early access period. Well, what I like about that game, um, this is, this has been less true since Civ 6 came out, but certainly when Civ 5 was the latest Civ, there was such a heavy wave of Civ 4 is the best Civ. And there's people out there who still say that. And, and there's, Civ 4 is a very, very good Civ game. <laughs> and I think in those conversations, we forget or we underestimate how much we like the stuff that comes later. So when, uh, you know, um, Saren Johnson, Saren Johnson, I get his name right? Mm -hmm. um, and, um, oh God, I'm sorry, it's a husband and wife team are running the studio. And I, I, anyway, but the Johnsons, um, they, uh, he had worked on Civ 4. And so when I first heard, oh, you know, it's the Civ 4 thing, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I hope it's going to be good. You kind of, I was, you know, a bit wary of that kind of a, a promise but it really is like old world really has all the things i remember being good about civ 4 in a way that feels progressive not reductive yes yes which is absolutely. really impressive yes really yes. impressive yeah 100 percent agree with that yeah yeah my game uh, to the shock of anyone who's ever heard a history spawn podcast before is crusader kings 3 <laughs> and um you know i've only played about 40 hours of it you know that's how little <laughs> i've uh so little time so here i am that. here i am with old world i played like maybe <laughs> two hours and you're with crusader kings 3 and you're like nah, I've, it's just a drop in the bucket just 40 hours you know, the first 100 hours of any Crusader Kings game should be spent finding new ways for Ireland to control Western Europe. That's kind of what I, you know, and then I'll move into the Holy Roman Empire. And I, I, I'm, uh, Crusader Kings 3, what I love, one of the things I love about that game is that um, Crusader Kings 2, after years of DLC, reached a really cool place where you could control um, states from all over, or, or civilization, or families, dynasties from all over the world. And CK3 started with that. I'm really glad they did that. Um, and, and, and controlling an African dynasty or a Middle Eastern dynasty, dynasty rather, or an Indian dynasty feels different from Europe in a way that makes sense. And so I, I can't wait to dig into all that. Um, and that's it. No even hopes for DLC or anything else like that. Just a game that I look forward to just playing. And it's funny, like you say, Bob, because with our lives the way they are, um, you know, 22-year-old John would have gone through Odyssey and went, that was awesome. I wish it was 120 hours, you know, because I, because that's, I was 22. I had the time. And yeah. if you're listening to 22, I don't begrudge you. Please do no, it God for me. God bless you. Uh, yeah. God bless you. Exactly. 
Crusader Kings 3 has that gift. I will find the time to play it somehow. Mm. Um, and and uh, and I just can't wait. And and um, a bit of a spoiler. Um, I might not. This might be my last chance to talk about it. Actually, in any major way uh, in this podcast. If you like Crusader Kings 2, you'd be insane not to get Crusader Kings 3. And I just keep saying this, but I think it's worth saying again. If you've ever been intrigued by these Paradox games, this is the one to jump into. Crusader mm. Kings 3. This is the one to jump into. You will um, find yourself seducing um, the Duchess of Lothian before you know it, and uh, and you'll love it. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to playing Crusader Kings 3. The Duchess or the Duke. Or or the Duke. That's yeah, and it's all the you know, it does all these things. Very quick note, I'm sorry, people have heard talk about this game so much. (laughs) Um, you know, your character can be gay, which isn't a problem, right? In the game. But you know what? In the 13th century, uh, a lot of people, at least publicly, didn't like that. Um, or certainly the bishops and so on publicly didn't like that. Um, and so there are penalties you can pay in the game for such relationships becoming public. Like all those little things are done. They really sat down and thought about it in ways that that just add up to a really enjoyable gameplay experience. Hmm. That's that's next year. So what about so 2019's history game of 2020? So this is coming back a little bit. This is the game that came out last year that we played a lot this year. Yes, so that that's right. Yes, that's right. And, and so for me, it's it's been a few months, um, but I played a lot of Total War Three Kingdoms earlier in the year, and we talked about it a bit earlier in the episode. But just just to kind of this might be their best game, the best Total War game. Um, I certainly it has. I think it's been very important for the series, and but funnily enough, it's made it's inspired me to go and reinstall other Total War games. Um, <laughs> again, a little bit, a bit, a little bit like Crusader Kings Three. You know, I for a long time, if somebody said to me, "I hear these Total War games are good. What would be a good first game?" I instantly said, "Shogun Two. Just get Shogun mm. Two. And unless you really like one of the other historical, like if you really like Rome, yes, you should get Rome Two. But but if you don't have any bias for any topic, any historical setting, you should pick Shogun Two. Mm-hmm. And now I think I would tell them to pick Three Kingdoms. Wow. Um, if you haven't picked this game up before, you can play it. The classic Total War. The game literally asks you which game do you want to play. The classic Total War experience or the more kind of character-based kind of, you know, um, storytelling kind of focused experience. And you can you can do both. So I enjoyed a lot of that game. I think I might play more of it in 2021 again. I have actually haven't dug into any of the DLC, so that'd be an excuse to, to do that. Um, so yeah, I continue to recommend it. How about you, Bob? What, what game survived into this year for you? Yeah, uh, the game that survived for me was Civilization VI, in particular their DLC Gathering Storm. Uh, which is the one that added in, you know, ecological disasters, you know, kind of a sense of global warming, all of this stuff. But I really liked it because of the new civilizations it introduced. Uh, so these civilizations included uh, Sweden, uh, the Ottoman Empire, Phoenicia, uh, and included uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, who could be a leader of England or France. Uh, it included the Maori and included Canada as well. Canada is a, uh, a civilization uh, in uh, Sid Meier's Civilization series. It's a remarkable thing. And I am really intrigued by what they've done with the Civilization series. You know, I think that uh, there's a real sense that this is a series that is, um, you know, through its DLC, adding a lot to not only the base game of Civ Six, but the idea of Civilization as a series. And I think this is uh, a really good DLC, you know, if you add it in with the other DLCs that's come along with Civ Six, 
uh, partly because you know now you're getting a fuller catalog of civilizations you could choose from, a lot of different options while you're playing, a lot of things that kind of make uh, the gameplay more compelling, uh, making the game feel like it's got more peaks and valleys, uh, you know, throughout rather than just kind of having the peak at near the end where you're about to win and then the valley of actually winning, you know. <laughs> uh, and so I think that even though there's a sense you've got games like Old World and Humankind kind of coming after uh, Civilization's throne, there's a sense that, you know, the king is not going to be caught sleeping. Um, and that civilization is something that is trying to iterate on its formula. Um, but that's not to say that old world humankind don't have things to offer, uh, things that could help civilization going down the road. But, you know, I think that uh, Civ Six uh, Gathering Storm, it's something I played a lot of uh, in the middle of the summer when I was, you know, kind of catching a moment away from the kids, uh, not really working on any research or writing. And, uh, you know, it's an easy game to pick back up. And uh, it's one that makes me eager to see, you know, new DLC going forward. And I should mention, too, uh, you know, we had had plans this year of debuting a new history respawn series called Historians on Civs. That hasn't happened yet, but uh, I do hope this next year, you know, maybe once the pandemic calms down a bit to, to go into this. And the premise for that idea is to have... Uh, historians come on and talk about the ways in which individual civilizations are portrayed by Civ Six, and I think this new DLC uh, that came out, uh, I think near the end of 2019, I think it was fall 2019, um, this one adds a lot more uh, potential topics to that series, so I'm really thankful to have played it this year. Yeah, I, on, on a quick aside as well, it's just interesting when Bob, when you and I were young, um, and expansions were kind of the thing, and I, DLC has matured in a way in the last few years that, yes, you can still buy a nice hat for your Fortnite character or whatever, <laughs> um, but to Civ, for Civ and other games to like be bringing these really meaningful DLCs, you know, mm -hmm. that, that you can come back to the game years later is, yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, I have a suggestion for the last two topics uh oh okay i think i think for the the history goatee and the non-history goatee i think we should go through our honorable mentions first for each one. Oh, okay our okay. honorable mentions for history goatee then the then our then our personal winners and then we do the same for the next category okay so this what is, do you think this really is, builds this, suspense this is this builds suspense <laughs> and so this is uh, uh the first category we'll do is 2020's uh history game of the year and so we're going to do our honorable mentions first so john now that you've changed up things, you have to go first. <laughs> I'd have to go first. So um, a quick shout out to Kentucky Route Zero, which is a game mm. that has kind of technically been around for, I think, since 2013. Yeah, almost a decade. From, uh, almost a decade from Cardboard Computer. I bought this game a long time ago and said, I'll play it when Chapter 5 comes out. And I I did that. I waited until Chapter 5 came. Chapter 5 finally came out. This is, um, it's also honorable mention for my non-history game of the year because it's not a, necessarily an obviously historical game. It's a wonderful, frankly, it's a piece of art um, in the sense of it's, it's, it's one of the more literary games I've played. Um, but it really engages with and is informed by and kind of celebrates while also being confused by this kind of Americana idea, mm. you know? And like, it's right there in the title, Kentucky Route Zero, this is a game that is deliberately kind of absurdist and surrealist, 
but is kind of folding itself into these kinds of perceived ideas of America. And I'm talking about kind of the America that like Bono fell in love with when you two were writing Joshua Tree. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like suddenly he had gospel singers. That's a long time ago, I know. But this is kind of, or the kind of America, speaking as a foreigner who came to this country to live here, you know, we all, even the more, maybe the internet is changing this, but even the more informed of us had an idea of the country before we got here. And of course, there's many Americans of an idea of the country too, like other places. But I think I like the way the Kentucky Route Zero, I, I like the way it lives that and it's in the DNA of it, even though it's not quote unquote a history game. Um, other honorable mentions for me, Hades uh, was not my nomination, but was just, we've talked about it and I'm going to let, I think we'll talk about it more perhaps. Um <laughs> You know what a great game. I've already said a couple of great couple of things about it. Um, I'm happy for the super giant games people because I think that not only is it their best game, but you can trace now all the things they're yeah. good at. Yeah. So all the things they're good at, they excelled at again. In fact, arguably did the best job they ever did. And they showed me they were good at things I had no idea they were good at. Yeah. Like I, I'm so impressed by them. What an amazing achievement. And as we commented a few a few categories ago. History is a huge part of what they're of yes. what they're doing. Yeah, enjoyment. I yeah, think. and you know, I think I like your comment there about you know tracing their development through their games. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that I can't wait to read is like a monograph level study of super giant games. Uh, you know, starting in the beginning and then going through and kind of analyzing each one of their games in turn. I think that would make for a really good book. I not just because I think they're a great studio, but also because like they have a very clear direction going from one project to another in the same way that you could say, you know, consider uh, the works of one author or uh, the works of one director, for instance, where, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like they're clearly, uh, you know, creating games, but then using those games as inspiration for the next title. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I just, in fairness, CD, CD Projekt Red is a much bigger studio than Supergiant Games, but I think we are seeing it's a challenge, I think, to maintain that kind of studio-wide culture. You know, this is who yeah. we are. This is what we do. Yeah. Well, and, and particularly in the case of CD Projekt Red, where they go from being a private company to a publicly traded company, which I think is yeah. that leads to a lot of lot of changes. I mean, you you look at like after Hades came out, and I was going to drive me crazy. I've forgotten the name of the actor who was kind of their was their main is their main voice actor, their kind of in house voice actor. He's done some fantastic just online content, just sharing stuff he does, and then for him to clearly feel a part of the game production as a whole. At the same time, they took other people like people like Greg Casavin, who was a writer, and made him a voice actor, and they can do these things. And you know, we, we'll talk about Hades more perhaps in a couple of minutes. And I, I just think what an achievement. <clears throat> Um, and then my final honorable mention, um, and then I'll let Bob go through his honorable mentions, is Crusader Kings 3. Um, <laughs> it was not my choice. I can't believe it. This is the biggest I... <laughs> shock for me on the list, honestly. This is a huge shock. Yeah, I know. I um, I can't believe it either. Um, I already talked about this game. Crusader Kings 3 is, it's just a wonderful game. And it got it got pipped at the end for reasons I'll go into in a few minutes. But it, it, was, it was such a narrow... Loss. I think one one thing I'll say, Crusader Kings uh, Three. I'm sorry, is that um, I love this game. I think I love it more a year from now. Mm. And I and I and I I think I really because that happened with the previous game, and I think it's gonna happen with this game. And I think next December we'll laugh at how ridiculous, and unbelievable it was. I didn't pick Crusader Kings Three, 
but you know, Steering Three and I were still working through working through the early phases of what's going to be a long relationship. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's an ex- it's an exceptional game. Didn't didn't quite get there. Didn't quite get there. Bob, what are your what what didn't quite make it for you? Uh, well, I'd say my first honorable mention goes to Radio General, uh, which is a game that I've only started playing this past week. But I just love the complete package. I love the kind of interesting twist it offers on strategy games, you know, using voice commands. And I think that in terms of uh, you know, learning the history, it's something that uh, it adds in a lot of primary sources. And I think it helps the overall package. And plus, it's it's like 20 bucks. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, easy, easy recommend. Uh, and then my other uh, honorable mention coming in second place for me for History Game of the Year is Through the Darkest of Times. And, you know, I kind of went into this in detail. Uh, for the category best game for the history classroom so i won't you know kind of draw it out any longer but i think in terms of the history that it portrays how it portrays it uh and then the price point you know particularly if you think about recommending it for other players or for classroom for students uh, it's just a great package complete package uh great game um and you know my quibbles with the way in which the strategy element works in that game i think are kind of moot when you think about everything else it does so well uh and so uh honorable mention second place for me history game of the year uh through the darkest of times well i'll go first my history game of the year um and then we'll do yours bob which the truth is actually i could totally co-sign on to yours we'll get to that in just a second <laughs> um i picked ghost of tsushima as my game of the year and um I think it came out in June. I'm trying to remember. It came out in the summer, I think, early summer. And so if you'd said to me in July, oh, you're going to pick that as your best history game, I, I would have said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I like it, but there's no way. There's just no way I'm going to do that. Um, and so it's a little bit of a contrast to Crusader Kings 3, where I haven't had a chance to let it really kind of, you know, sit there yet. As the months went on, and as I thought more and more about Ghost of Tsushima, it's actually, I, my memories of it have grown fonder. And as I've gone back into it to play it more, I'm enjoying it more. Um, as a game, it's 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 a beautifully made game. Um, the sound design in Ghost of Tsushima is exceptional. Um, the gameplay is very strong. Um, it's got a bit of character to it where you can play this game stealthily or you can just do what I do, which is walk up to the front of every fort and press the come on out if you think you're hard enough button. <laughs> and they all come out one by one and you just you just you just take care of dudes and in those moments, it really feels like it's hitting that kind of samurai movie aesthetic that they wanted to hit, which they don't always hit, but in those moments, it feels like it. Um, I think the reason in the end I picked it as a history game was that, you know, um, I'm assuming the average, I'm assuming the listeners know this, but, you know, medieval Japan has been done. Um, <laughs> it's been done a lot by a lot of different video games. And it's true that the main story is perhaps a little bit... Um, you know, steady, uh, but they did a great job. And they depicted aspects of Japanese society that were that aren't always covered in the same way. They might not have hit that kind of frontier aspect I would have liked to. But then again, you know, the depiction of the Mongols is pretty solid. You know, people have said, well, they're, they're kind of these uh, a one-note, you know, murderous rampage. Is that not problematic? It's like, well, I, it is problematic, but at the same time, that's kind of what the Mongols did. Um, it's certainly how they were seen by the people trying to, to stave them off. Um, and so I, I, I think it is a worthy entry into kind of 
the ongoing public discourse of medieval Japan and, and why on earth the Western world is so bloody interested in medieval Japan, I think Ghost of Tsushima ticks a lot of those boxes. So, you know, uh, congratulations to all involved. I, I really thought it was good. And, and, and that was the game. That was the game I chose. Oh, wow. Awesome. Uh, so my history game of the year, and I guess the site's history game of the year, since John has <laughs> yeah. so graciously I bended to I my will, uh, <laughs> is Super Giants Hades. Um, you know, I think we've talked quite a bit about the historical elements so far when we were discussing uh, Dionysus, uh, when we were discussing, you know, a game that you would recommend to somebody who found history boring in school. Um, but I think uh, I'll use this time now to talk about just what a great game it is to play uh you know this follows in a line now of really good recent roguelike games um you know you've had uh games like uh ftl uh, which is my previous favorite roguelike game uh you have games like um, uh, dead cells uh you have hollow knight uh, another one of my personal favorites but i think this game kind of blows those out of the water to be honest uh it's it's got the great roguelike uh, systems, you know, the kind of repetitive gameplay, you know, uh, rinse and repeat gameplay. Uh, but then it's also just got tremendous world-class artwork and tremendous writing. Um, and I am, again, five days into playing this game. <laughs> uh, I've, I've had, I think, 60 runs in the game so far, and I'm still coming across new dialogue and it's all great. It's all fun. It adds a lot to the game. And, you know, this is a game I think that retails for $25. And I would have gladly paid $60, $70 for this game, given the amount of time that I put into it. And, you know, it could be the case that roguelike games aren't for you, which is totally fine. I, I could completely get that. Uh, but if you enjoy the kind of artistic work at the indie level, uh, that developers can achieve, then that's something I would say you should look at this game for. Uh, if you're interested in kind of new developments in narrative uh, from indie developers, you know, I think Supergiant has really killed it with this one. Um, and I'd say, you know, in general, indie game developers have done so much in recent years with narrative. And I'm so excited to see that. You know, I think one of the common criticisms that you get from people who are not familiar with games is this idea that, well, narratively, they're just kind of like paperback novels. You know, they're not great. Um, but now I think, you know, with things like Hades, uh, with things like Heaven's Vault uh, from Inkle Studio, now we're getting kind of a new level, a new echelon of writing uh, in games. And they're coming from small development teams, uh, which I think is even more remarkable. And uh, so, yeah, Hades for me, history game of the year. Um, we do have a separate category for non-history game of the year. And so if you were to consider Hades not a history game, well, then it's my non-history <laughs> game of the year as well. Uh, but for this, the purposes of this podcast, we're calling it a, a history game. So, yeah, Hades couldn't recommend it more. I've played it on PC where it's tremendous. I'm playing it now on the Switch now that cross saves are working um, and it's great there as well uh i do recommend obviously using a controller and that's how most super giant games uh operate so but yeah i can't can't recommend higher enough that's great well oh we're good i i just um one of the things i like about this kind of 
Hades is in some ways it's the crown jewel of like this indie revolution that isn't a revolution anymore. They won that battle a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people involved that make that game special who either can't type a line of code to save their life or maybe couldn't have before they joined Supergiant Games. And I think to help particularly young people who are interested in getting the industry to understand, like there's a lot of things you can bring into this. Yes. Because it is ultimately storytelling. And I say that not to undercut the importance of the engineering that needs to happen. And mm-hmm. those people, that's, those skills are needed. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can feel welcome in those environments. There's a lot of studios who are making it clear, you know, that, that you can do that. So I think that's, yeah. So I happily co-sign. Now, I'd fight a bit harder for my non-history game. Let me get that into a second. If I can bring us on, so our non-history game of the year, very quickly, I've talked about almost all my kind of runners-up, Kentucky Route Zero, Ghost of Tsushima, Crusader Kings 3, um, Animal Crossing's New Horizons, quick shout-out. I've been playing these games since the GameCube. Animal Crossing games are wonderful. I'm so happy they exist. This particular game came out just as lockdowns were hitting, and um, a grateful a grateful generation turned its eyes to Animal Crossing and hugged it closely <laughs> and made friends with it. Um, it's the best Animal Crossing game, um, which until this game came out, I would have said was the GameCube game, was, was my personal favorite. Um, and especially in these trying times, if you haven't played Animal Crossing game, I think it's it's worth it's worth looking up. Um, would I just cut to my my choice, seeing as there's a bit of overlap Please there? Please do. Or... Yeah, go for it. For me, the non-history game of the year was The Last of Us 2. Um, I really think that game was truly exceptional. Um, I think I have found the critical reception to it to be kind of interesting. Um, the first Last of Us game had a similarly sometimes, um, I'm not trying to think of the word I'm looking for, um, Not mixed is not the right word, but a lot of different kinds of reactions to that first game as well. The Last of Us 2, I won't get into why it's narratively challenging and aesthetically challenging, so I don't want to ruin it if people haven't had a chance to play it. Um, but The Last of Us 2 is a grown-up game, narratively speaking, in a way that games typically aren't. Um, Cyberpunk 2077, which I really enjoy, and I am enjoying its storytelling, is not a grown-up game, narratively speaking. And I don't mean that as a dig. I, I think that game is going for a certain kind of a style. The Last of Us 2, it, it really wants, you know, it, it's challenging you. And um, what I will say, and I don't think this spoils anything, is that it's a very violent game that um, makes it very, the game makes it clear to you, its creators consider you complicit in the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was excellently done. And I think the story is good. And the story um, was very moving in a way that video games have rarely succeeded in moving me. Um, and I I may, you know, or my character, I didn't get to make the choice that was scripted. The character made a choice late in that game that just just broke my heart. Mm-hmm. And it just thickened me that that was, they had a chance to, they had a chance to escape a cycle of, of pain and they didn't do it. And um, that's what humans do, you know? Um, and so, and on top of all of that, technically speaking and everything else, it was a beautifully made game. And I think the gameplay was great. So Last of Us 2, I'm I'm so happy that game was as... I really wanted that game to be good. And I'm so happy that I wasn't disappointed. Yeah. And so Last of Us 2 uh, is my runner-up for this category. Uh, best non-history game of the year um, for all the reasons John just went through. And, you know, I think when we were talking about with relation to narrative with Hades, um, you know, with more recent games, this fits into that kind of elevated 
narrative tradition, new tradition, I would say, for gaming. And, uh, you know, I think you would mention that uh, some of the criticism of this game was surprising, but I would say that for me, it was surprising, but it's also hardening to know that we could have such high level discussions about this kind of narrative in a game. I think, you know, if you were to look back in previous decades, it would have been very difficult to kind of sustain that sort of uh, criticism, Uh, you know, post-release going further. And, you know, I think post-release, obviously last of us two could sustain a lot of uh, really well-considered criticism, but also I think going forward, this is a game that's going to continue to generate a lot of thoughts. Um, And so, yeah, I, I'm just uh, such a huge fan of Naughty Dog. Uh, you know, Last of Us Two has won all sorts of awards. Every time Naughty Dog comes out with a game, it's kind of like it's a huge event. But it's a huge event not only because of the technical marvel that their games present, but then also narratively, it's like, oh, what are they going to do next? You know, how are they going to make? How are they going to make me feel? How are they going to make me cry? You know, all of this <laughs> stuff. And um, yeah, it's just a tremendous game. Yeah, so. Uh, my non-history game of the year uh, is some um, is a game that uh, doesn't have the kind of uh, weight <laughs> uh, and uh, feeling of uh, uh, complicity as uh, The Last of Us Two, uh, and that game is Mario Kart Live Home Circuit uh, for the Nintendo Switch. So, if you're not familiar, uh, Mario Kart Live Home Circuit is a racing mixed reality game. And uh, for $100 US, uh, you purchase a uh, real-life Mario Kart. Uh, It's Mario inside of a cart, and it is essentially an RC car uh, that you control with your Switch uh, via a Wi-Fi bridge. And uh, using this device, uh, you can create uh, Mario Kart courses in real life. Uh, and play them out in your living room, uh, your dining room, anywhere around your house. And uh, it is limited to inside the house, so that's a bit frustrating. Uh, I know some people have kind of jury-rigged sunscreens for the camera so they can use it outside. Uh, I haven't gotten that far, but uh, the extent that I have played it, uh, I got this as a gift for my daughter. Uh, She's six years old. Uh, she turned six in October. I got this as a gift for her. Uh, we love playing Mario Kart together, and it just seemed like a natural fit uh, to you know create Mario Kart courses in real life. And we have just had such a huge blast with this game. And you know, I think having kids was something I always wanted to do, but you know, now that the, she's gotten older, it's really exciting to be able to share these kinds of experiences with her and you know to have as much fun with it uh as you know for myself as she is as well and you know to get to see how she kind of brings her own unique personality to creating the course and how she controls uh mario and she's already uh, agitating for a second uh mario kart you know uh the, the luigi one i think is the only other one that's come out but that's another hundred dollars that i'm just not sure if i want to uh, that pay for right now, especially in the midst of the pandemic. Um, but this is a game that I I would highly recommend for anybody who has kids and who has a Nintendo Switch. It's just such a magical experience. And uh, I've got my six-year-old daughter, uh, but then also a two-year-old son. And he gets a real kick out of it as well. He loves to 
chase Mario around. He can't say Mario, uh, so instead he says Mario Yo, and so he's just <laughs> running around the house going Mario Yo, Mario Yo, and he <laughs> takes turns uh, uh, either chasing uh, Mario Yo or having Mario Yo chase him around the house. And this is a really fun uh, uh, go kart. It's it's pretty short as well, so it can fit underneath furniture, so you can kind of surprise. Uh, your kids or your significant other uh, with this go-kart and then speed away. And uh, my wife had a really good description of it. Uh, There's a a famous uh, 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 children's book uh, about a mouse uh, who races a a motorcycle. Uh, And then there's also, of course, the Stuart Little series as well. And uh, this is like uh, a real-life version of those stories, right? You know, kind of being the miniaturized uh, animal on a go-kart or on a motorcycle uh, speeding around the house and evading humans and uh, so you can you can use it as uh, just a go-kart you know to terrify your two-year-old or to chase your two-year-old around the house or you can use it as it was intended to create uh, you know real life Mario Kart courses uh, and it is expensive you know $100 is not cheap but Again, if you have, uh, you know, a deep love for Mario Kart, if you have um, a young kid, uh, this is something I think is really worth checking out. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Christmas week, middle of Hanukkah, something heartwarming. More heartwarming <laughs> than The Last of Us 2. Definitely, yes. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, I guess that does it for today's episode of History Respond, our Game of the Year episode uh, for 2020. It's now in the books. Uh, looking forward to 2021. And John, thank you so much. Uh, you did bang up work this year. Uh, you kept everybody in your family alive. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you're not divorced. So it's I, it's all good know, at this point. I know. Yeah. You and me both. Well done, Bob. <laughs> Thanks to you as well. And Thanks to you for keeping us respond up and running. Like, I don't know how you did it. I really don't. You actually were, you got a lot of good work put out um, oh, for the channel, and for the website this year. And I'm, I'm grateful to still be part of this and everything. So Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays to everybody. And uh, Merry Christmas, happy holidays to everybody listening. We hope that we hope that you're all safe and uh, we can't tell you, I mean, I'll let Bob say it, but I mean, we're obviously so grateful that you, um, that you listen to us, watch us and uh, that you appreciate what we're trying to do. So, yeah. All right. I, I couldn't say it better myself. Yeah. So I'll just wrap up by saying happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, John. Uh, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.